By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is part two of our discussion on controlling impact. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen because we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. And thanks again to our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. They carry all the major brands of golf simulators and launch monitors like Foresight, Skytrack, and Unicore, and they've got options that can fit every budget. So whether you're looking for a simulator an impact screen, a hitting mat, nets, they've got it all. So check them out at shopindoorgolf.com and thanks again for their support. And without further ado, we are going to pick up right where we left off. We never get our swing exactly where we want it as well. So that, you know, the post that we had said, learn and practice proper mechanics first. It's like, well, okay, if you do take that approach, at what point do you start doing skill development then? Because you never get the outcomes as you want it. Pros are still missing 40% fairways and 40% greens. So you never get your mechanics where you want it. So at what point do you start doing the skill development? And my answer is immediately. You know, another thought that's coming to me is that, again, with all of the... <laughs> there's a lot of junk on the internet. I just have to say, like, you could... I'm sure plenty of golfers go on Google and they search how to fix a slice and then a bunch of articles are going to pop up. And the information is total BS. I'm just going to be very straightforward with people. They're written by people who actually know nothing about golf. They're just trying to... uh <laughs> rank higher on search engines. So they'll re just regurgitate a lot of this stuff. You know, they'll talk about where the wrists are at the top of your swing or grip. And like, there's all these different mechanical paths you could take to fix this problem. And th the issue is, is that like, you might be slicing, you don't know why you are slicing 
especially like you have to almost pin the tail on the donkey and get the right mechanical fix for your problem. So I'd say, yes, that could potentially work. Maybe you will find the right YouTube video or the right article that resonates with you and fixes the problem. I would say for most players, your chance of success is far lower, you know, spinning the roulette wheel of mechanical fixes. That's what I'm thinking of. It's like you're throwing the ball out there and hoping the ball lands on the right number, which would lead you to the right mechanical fix. I had a guy last week hitting push slices and he was actually, when I put him on the quad, his path was in to out. Okay. So his path was maybe one or two degrees in to out and his face was between two and four degrees open. So he was hitting a proper push slice. And it's kind of rare to do this. I said, well, he said to me, yeah, it's been made worse recently. I did go on the internet and I looked at a video and they were talking about how a slice is caused by your path being too far left. So I've tried to swing more into out, but I just, it worsened my game. He said he started hitting it fat. And I said, well, yeah, that makes logical sense because your path isn't the issue here. And if you try and swing even more into out, you're going to shift the low point. So, you know, this is a, a case of where a player's gone on the internet to look at it. It wasn't explained correctly or is explained maybe a bit too generically and so then he's ended up introducing something to his swing that made things worse and so this is where dealing with a good instructor or going on to my programs next level golf (laughs) where everything is outlined and explained fully really helps so yeah if you're going on the internet for stuff i mean there's a lot of good stuff out there i don't want to disparage every coach out there there's a lot of good stuff no, there's a lot of great stuff. You know who we had on last week, Andrew Rice. I told everyone to go on his YouTube channel. I consider that a safe place. I think he's got really good information because Andrew is someone who doesn't necessarily believe in the one model swing. He's a, a skill development type player, but he also talks about the mechanics of the swings and I think communicates them so that people understand how all the matchups work together. You know, that to me is more responsible education. Is everyone who goes to Andrew's YouTube channel going to become a better golfer? I don't know, but I'd say they maybe have a better chance of it than going to some of the crappier ones. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots of good stuff out there. My educational programs have always been designed to educate as well as show people what to do. So I'm showing people how to identify it. So that player wouldn't have got into that error if they got the accuracy plan because they would have seen that, oh, my path is already in doubt. I don't need to change that. I just need to change the face because I show people how to identify what's happening. So, yeah, I mean, the education is important. I always look at a player as, do they know what causes their outcome? So if they're slicing it and I ask them and I say, do you know what's causing that big slice? And they shrug their shoulders. That's level one. So I increase their understanding. Then it's, are they aware of what's happening? So, okay, a player might know that hitting off the toe is not a good thing, but do they know that they're doing it? (laughs) You know, when they hit a shank, for example, do they identify that correctly? Because I've seen lots of players shank it off the heel. And I say, where do you think you hit on the face? And they point at the toe. So awareness is key. Knowledge is one thing, but being aware of what you're doing is another. Let me interject here because it was so strange to me. I was playing with a left-handed golfer the other day and they shanked one and I forgot they were a lefty. And I'm like, it kind of like, I just saw the ball going in the opposite direction to the left. And I'm like, how did that happen? It like, I'm like thinking, I'm like, how is that physically possible? And I remembered, oh, he's a lefty. <laughs> I'd never seen a lefty shank before in person. It just like, it rattled me. <laughs> 
It's interesting, yeah. Watching lefties for a while kind of reverses my brain. I have to go through this deconditioning period. But yeah, I mean, does he know what he's supposed to do? I'm pretty sure everybody knows that this was to hit the sweet spot. But is he aware of what he just did in that? You know, if you asked him, did he hit the shanker? Which part of the face he hit? There'd be probably a 50% chance that he'd get it wrong if he's a high handicap. Oh, no, this guy was a... This was in a tournament. He was a legit player. It was actually just like kind of out of the blue. And, And to his credit, he shrugged it off made his bogey and got on with the round and played very well. It was actually kind of cool to see just like, you know, someone playing well in a tournament late in the round, just out of nowhere, just made, just came out of complete nowhere. And he just kind of laughed at it, almost broke a window on the halfway house. He's like, wouldn't that have been... I thought you said he almost broke wind for a moment. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) that would have been even funnier. But he's like, wouldn't it be a great story if I hit the skylight of the halfway house? Like at this point, yeah, I just, I thought it was a very cool reaction in the moment for this guy was a seasoned tournament player. He shrugged it off and went about his business. He knows what happened, but he put it behind him very quickly. Yeah. Well, so there's level one. Does he know? Level two, is he aware of what actually happened? Uh, Level three is then, can he actually change it? So if there's a bad pattern occurring, if there's a shank pattern, can he change it? And then level four is, can he change it precisely? So these are the kind of levels that I take players through. And once I get my players really good at all these levels, they become their own coach. I still coach them, but (laughs) I'm like, dude, you know this stuff now. You can do this. You can take charge of this yourself. And that's ultimate satisfaction for me, not for my bank account count because you know it's easier to lock someone into a swing model and say oh we've got to work on p8.5 today that's an easier business model but for me it's always been let's get these players coaching themselves because i've got an endless list of players behind them who i can you know start on this journey as well no that's honestly one of the reasons i wanted to start practical golf was to help people teach themselves things Not necessarily the golf swing because I I like to explore everything but that, but certainly the practice stuff I've figured out, the strategy stuff, the managing expectations stuff. Once you start to understand these things about golf, and now I'm kind of currently pushing people to listen to this show because I think we're putting in a different format for people. I guess we're not rendering ourselves useless, but we're trying to arm people with more tools to self-diagnose and coach themselves because... It's not very fun to be hopeless in this game, and there's a lot of hopeless golfers out there. So, yeah, I think we continue to get a lot of a good feedback. And certainly, if someone wants to give us some critical feedback, that's fine too, because I need to hear it and understand it. In this instance, I guess we happen to disagree with the criticism because I do think it's the opposite. I don't think quote-unquote proper mechanics exist. They're open to interpretation for each player. There's so many. We did a whole episode on swing matchups and how they can work together. But it's the underlying skill and the ability to adjust technique, which I guess what really skill is, is that's the real you know thing you can't see that I think most of the better players have. It's not necessarily the technical stuff. And that's the point when we were discussing with Andrew and I asked him the question, you know, when we see a player who is low skilled and has good technique the answer is always oh we need to change your skill which is logical but when we see a player who is you know reasonably skilled but has a poor technique the answer is always to change their technique so yeah when we discussed with andrew rice i mentioned the thing that 
technique for 99% of instructors and players is always the answer, right? When something's going wrong, it's, oh, well, I need to change my technique. And no one ever goes, oh, I need to change my skill. I need a skill upgrade. And the problem with that approach is you could get lots of players, like imagine you got a Ray Floyd or a Nancy Lopez where a takeaway was so inside that it goes off the camera screen. Right. And you got her when she's having a bad day. It's like the answer for most instructors would be, oh, let's change that technique. That technique is horrible. Well, you might have just ruined one of the best players in the world, the best players ever to have lived, really. And so, yeah, with a Furic as well. What happens when you got a young Furic who wasn't as polished, you know, skill wise and strategy wise as he was in his peak? You know, you'd get that player and on the off day, you'd want to tear his swing apart. And luckily his father protected him from that because, you know, Jim Furyk just upgraded his skills, you know, maybe not consciously, but through beating thousands and thousands of golf balls and believing in what technique he has, he upgraded his skills. And so my question has always been, well, look, if I get a player who has a bit of a funky technique, but I've seen that on tour, you know, I've seen that inside takeaway on tour before, I'm starting to think, well, what if I kept that technique and just did skill upgrades instead? What would happen? And so I started to explore that. And lo and behold, everybody got better with it. And they got better without their swing necessarily changing. So I thought, oh, this is great. I've got two tools at my disposal. I could go the technical route if I want to, or I could go the skill route. And as I started searching around, I saw no one is talking about how to develop skill. And so that's why I kind of went into that niche, really. And that's why this is such an important and passionate topic for me, this one right here. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, honestly, that's how I found you initially and Andrew. You and Andrew are really the first two coaches I gravitated towards when I first started my site back in 2015. And I remember messaging you because I was kind of forming these ideas in my head. I was a, you know, non-mechanical player and thinking about all these things and the ways I was improving by not going crazy with my golf swing and performing these tasks. And like, I remember I messaged you, I think on Twitter one day, I sent you a message. I'm like, Hey, by the way, I love your site. I just want to let you know, I'm not plagiarizing your stuff. I think we just have very similar philosophies on how to get better at golf. I think that was the first interaction we ever had, if I'm remembering correctly. And then obviously we've kind of helped each other and been friends ever since. But I don't know if heretics is the right word, whatever it is, but it sounds almost too good to be true. But I think when you say like, how do you identify or someone listening to this or thinking to themselves, well, how do I identify a five skill? Like what's a good test to give someone? To me, it would be like, put yourself through the gamut on all the things we talk about with your driver. Can you strike different parts of the face or take a lower lofted iron? Can you take a target and adjust your swing path, meaning can you curve it to that target in both directions or can you control the ball directionally? You know, not perfectly, but saying like, okay, hit one to the right, one to the left, one straight and see how many times you could reasonably do that or change the curvature or even the trajectory of the golf ball. That to me, that's some of the stuff I've done for fun on the range. And we mentioned this again in the wedge talk with Andrew. I think it teaches you how to manipulate the golf ball in your hands, really, on a lot of things. You're not going to do all those shots on the course, but like you said, we're identifying skill and building it. To me, that'd be like a good test if someone wants to say like, do I actually have skill? Start messing around with that stuff and you can find out. I know you have probably more formal drills that you've given your students over the years. 
Yeah, well, I've got different types of drills. So some of them are differential practice drills. So that's where you're exploring hitting right, left, toe, heel. So basically exploring what you don't want, but you're doing it in precise amounts and you're doing it intentionally. Then I've got drills called variability drills where you're trying to do what you do want. You're just trying to solve that problem in a different way. So one example of that might be try and hit your ball down towards your target, but start setting up out of the toe. So you're setting up at the toe of the club. You've got to figure out how to swing back and strike the sweet spot from there and then reverse it, set up at the heel, swing back and hit the center. So those are called variability drills. And then I've got loads of different levels for those as well. So I've got complete beginner levels, which, you know, a differential practice drill might be, can you hit the toe with a putting swing that's six inches? That might be complete beginner level all the way down to tall pro level, which is can you hit three millimeters off the toe, then six millimeters off the toe, then nine millimeters off the toe. So they're controlling it by three millimeter windows. So you need more precise equipment for that, like a GC quad. You can get a good approximation with face spray as well. Yeah. And as we're recording this episode, I think we're on part two now. So this will probably be coming out in November as we get to the off season for many players like myself who are living in colder climates. You know, we had our first episode was on winter practice ideas, but this is the type of stuff that when I go into my off season, and if you have the ability to hit balls at home in your garage into a net, and you, let's say you don't even have a launch monitor, you could still do stuff like this with spraying the face or even face control drills. I look at when I'm hitting, sometimes I just hit balls into my net without my SkyTrack connected, and I'm looking what parts of the net I'm hitting. Really thinking about my face control, I could see when a ball started further to the right because I could see where it went out of the net. Like, pay attention to this stuff. A lot of people are like, well, what do I do when I'm just hitting into a net or at the range? Like, yeah, put yourself through the gamut on this stuff based on your skill level. I think you could start at different points. But these are great, like, off-season things to do. And in-season as well, but I tend to veer towards them in the off-season now. If you were to do them the first ever time, I would do them off-season as well, or at least keep them far away from a tournament because it can be a little disruptive at first. You know, you can imagine if you're trying to hit toe and heel and you've never done it before, uh, you're opening up new things. Whereas once they're reasonably practiced, you know, and that you're talking about maybe a week or a month or so, you can actually get to the point where I have players who do them in season, even pre-tournament sometimes. They'll spend a little time doing these things. But, you know, that's my book, The Practice Manual, is all about how to structure your practice and how to structure your season so you're doing these things at the right points. So I'd agree with you there, John. But yeah, I mean, all this stuff is just so important. I've had players who are, you know, for example, experimenting with face strike in the net and, you know, they're experimenting with hitting more off the toe. And then all of a sudden they hit the sweet spot for the first ever time. And they go, wow, that felt so good. And I said, yeah, that's because you've been hitting the heel for your entire golfing life. Without even knowing it. <laughs> exactly. And this drill has just opened up a new part of the club face. You're actually using the part of the club face you should be now. And so, you know, all these, this exploring, all the slicer, the guy who hits this weak, high seven iron that goes 100 yards. And then we work on hooking the ball for a little bit closer the face down and they hit it 30 yards farther they feel compression for the first time in their life and they go wow that's amazing i'm like yeah that's because you've been playing a 45 degree open face most of your life so these drills are great for experiencing new things but there's just so many advantages to them and i remember doing it when i was in high school my dad built me a net out in our backyard and i used to take masking tape and put it on my irons because that i had like you know tore type irons. And that was back then when the center of gravity, the sweet spot was actually located more towards the heel 
for players' irons. And I knew that. People told me, geez, that far back? Yeah. These were like blade bladey blades, whatever you want to call them. And I remember I used to take masking tape. This was before anyone had figured out the foot spray thing. And I would, because I heard that somewhere. Luckily, it was actually, you know, decent advice. And I remember doing that practice when I was like 15 or 16. And then I kind of threw it out the window for a decade. <laughs> but I remember doing that and it being like very eye-opening for the first time. I was like, wow, that's what it feels like to hit it over there. My goal, once I realized there was something else going on other than technique, you know, how could you look at a tour player and one week they're on form, the next week they're off? Or how could you look at a player whose swing is clearly a five handicap and they're shooting 25 over par? And I'm like, what's the difference here? What is the difference? And that is the unseen skill element, amongst other things. It could be strategy as well, psychology, but skill is a huge portion of that. And like Andrew Rice said, it's unseen. But my goal has been to always say, well, okay, it's unseen, but can we still measure it? Can I define it? And can I measure it? Because if I can measure it, I can then test it. And if I can test it, I can develop it. And so, you know, I've got all these different structured plans for players. And in the lesson I'm going to with you, look at your skill level and see what are you in face strike? Are you a scratch handicap at face strike? Or are you like a 25 handicap at face strike? Are you a pro at face strike? Maybe you're a pro at face strike and ground strike, but you're a seven handicap at face direction. And that's your limiting part. So you can develop all of these skills and you can see where your weaknesses are. And, you know, with skills, I would talk about the three core skills, right? If all you have to do as a golfer is work on ground contact and face contact, in fact, you could combine that into one skill, right? Because that is striking the ground in one spot. If you can do that, you'll hit the sweet spot and the ground in the right place. And then the other core skill is face direction. Those are the main ones that I would look at. I know Andrew Rice looks more at performance skills. So like, can you get the ball to finish where you want? Can you hit higher trajectories, lower trajectories? So those are more performance related skills or outcome related skills, which I have a lot of as well. I love those things. But in terms of impact skills, you can go into any impact factor. Do you remember how many impact factors there are, John? Seven. Perfect. Well done. You've been listening to all my stuff. <laughs> yes, there are seven impact factors. So we've talked about the big three. You could talk about path then. So I could, you know, using something like the nail drill, we could say, right, can you change your path by two degrees each time or four degrees each time, whatever your skill level is. You could even go into more esoteric skills like can you change the dynamic loft? I don't see these ones as hugely important for most golfers. These are going to be the refinement skills that when you get to like scratch level, you're going to be working on those. Can you change angle of attack? You know, that's reasonably important for most players because you're going to experience different lies on the course. So, you know, I went through a, a gamut of skill tests with a player the other day where we were changing angle of attack is really simple thought I give them. I just said, imagine that you're hitting a spot on the ground that's farther forward of the ball and their angle of attack changed. And I said, now imagine that spot is closer to the ball. So you're just picking that spot where the ball is and their angle of attack got shallower. So a really simple concept, but we went through then how to, you know, I saw, I pushed them. How steep can you get the angle of attack? I think we got down to minus 12. And then can you hit up on it and still hit a functional shot? And I think they got to about plus two where they found it was almost impossible to hit anything not thin or fat after that point. So all these skills, every single one of the seven impact laws can be tested. But I always boil things down simply for into those three or two core skills. 
You know, it's a great, I mean, I kind of want to give them credit because I, I think they were one of the, the first companies to really open the door. And I know you were a track man guy initially. Like, I think I spent a lot of time on their site years ago. They have a lot of short videos and you can even do, you can do the track man university for free, I think on their site. I don't know if you still can, but they have a lot of really neat short videos that just explain concepts like, you know, spin rate and launch angle and face angle and swing direction, like the stuff we're talking about. But I think Yeah, that was kind of a good resource for me to kind of verify, I guess, some of the things I was maybe stumbling on, but didn't really understand too clearly. Like, I thought that was always a great resource. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Well, if you like the track myself, I do agree. They're very good videos. They take one impact variable or one thing that the track man measures, and they give a five-minute video on that. Now, if you like that stuff and you want to go deeper down that, my next level golf program has a 30-minute video on pretty much every impact variable. And then it links to how you can change those variables through skill or technical changes. So I'm really connecting all the dots from launch monitor numbers, from outcome, all the way to how you can actually change these things as well. Sorry, I know major plugs in this episode. No, no. I mean, I want people to buy your stuff. They should. I always tell people to do it because I think it's a steal. <laughs> you know, practice manual was it cost 25 bucks. I'm working on my own book right now with my own spin on everything I've learned. And a lot of it's probably similar to what we discussed now. But, you know, it's the teaching someone how to fish type thing. It's better than, you know, we only have a finite amount of time to learn about this game and practice it. So I just think spending it efficiently and maybe more productively is Yeah, we're kind of saying the same thing over and over again, but these are the things that are more productive. And I guarantee if I pulled like 100 golfers aside at a public course right now and just asked them about these things, like what makes the ball go right or left, you know? they'd probably say something that wasn't factually correct or had never even thought about it. I've done it on every single lesson, John. Every single lesson I've had, what, 10,000 lessons or so, I've asked them, it's more than 20,000 probably, I've asked them what causes your ball to do what it's doing I like I know but what do you think is happening and I would say 90% of answers are wrong you know they're hitting off the heel and they think they're hitting off the toe or they're slicing it to the right and they think they're swinging to the right so they're wrong and when I ask them what they're doing to try and solve it most of the things they're doing are making things worse (laughs) so yeah education is really important if you want to teach someone to actually fish instead of give them a fish that lasts for a day and it's certainly getting better like there's a lot of great since this information has come out or at least been verified and clarified. There's certainly more of it out there, but I still think golfers want that mechanical stuff. They love it. They want it. (laughs) Golf swing crack, I call it. It's so addictive because the game is so hard, right? There's this interesting phenomenon with human beings, even with animals, that when the outcome is more random, we get more superstitious, And we also look for more complex answers. This all goes all the way back to like the Skinner box pigeons, if you've ever seen those experiments. But humans are exactly the same. I mean, golf is such a random outcome. Small changes, like we said, a one degree change in club face can miss the fairway. And when these changes are so small and the outcome is so infuriating, you can make a swing that feels exactly the same as the last one. And one flies pure and the other one you fat it and it goes eight inches. And you think, what is going on? And so we tend to 
go for more complex answers. When the outcome is random and complex, we go for more complex answers. That's just human beings. That's how we've been socially cultured as well. But Occam's razor, the simplest answer is often the right one. Is that Occam's razor? I think it is. So yeah, and I'm doing Occam's razor coaching really here. We're going to take a quick break here and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. All right, Adam, there's a little bit more that you want to unpack here. So I think you've got a few more bullet points on your list that you want to tackle. So what's the next one? So the note was made in that comment. Are you working with a good instructor to learn mechanics first? And then he says, then impact will automatically happen. No, it won't necessarily. Now, there is a caveat to that. If you have your mechanics looking beautiful, what has very likely happened is you've spent thousands and thousands of hours because that is what is needed to make your mechanics looking beautiful for the vast majority of people. You spent thousands and thousands of hours working on your game. And by default, if you spent that much time working on your game, you will have unconsciously picked up skills. So yes, working on your mechanics will unconsciously work on your skills at the same time because you're just spending so much time in the game. However, 
Working on your mechanics is not the fastest way to better skill. So working on your skill is the fastest way to better skill. So it's just, do you have any comments on that? I actually have a perfect example of this. I had kind of a backwards relationship with golf. You know, usually it's like a dad who loves golf, bringing their son into it. My dad never played golf as a child. And, you know, I I played a lot of sports and he always supported what I did. So he decided to take up golf when he turned 50 or somewhere around there. And he was like, okay, I'm going to take this up and, you know, you can help me. And my dad's like a super, you know, Scott Fawcett said in his episode, golf attracts type A people. And my dad is very type A, very mechanical, like, wasn't an engineer, but has an engineering type mind. In any event, he spent a lot of time obsessing about mechanics when he first took up the game. And he actually got fairly good quickly. But what happened was, is, and it was really kind of the genesis of practical golf watching him. It kind of reminded me of all this stuff. He got so obsessed with the mechanics that every week he was, you know, spending four hours on the range. He was taking lessons and he just wouldn't let up. And one day... I was experimenting. You remember the the swing analyzers that were kind of coming out five, six years ago? There was a lot of them. So we were playing with the Zep one, which I think no longer is in business. But I was experimenting with it and, you know, attaches to your glove and, you know, it's trying to measure stuff like swing plane and all these things. And it gives you scores out of 100. (laughs) And I at the time was, you know, probably a one or two handicap. I was getting pretty good. And he was, you know, your classic 9,500 type shooter. My dad goes on this thing. I go on this thing. He's spraying the ball all over the place, cannot control the face. This thing's telling him his swing plane is perfect. He's getting like 90 out of 100. He's getting all these like top green scores. And I go on it and it's like 53, 62, like red territory, orange territory. And I'm hitting, you know, pretty good, good golf shots. And that memory always sticks with me because I think it's a perfect example of what you're discussing. Like his swing actually aesthetically looked nicer than mine. It was actually quite on plane. He had done a good job of emulating what he was seeing on TV and what the instructors were telling him. His main frustration was, is he'd go out on the course and lose 10 balls. John, this is why, have you seen these AI apps that are coming out that measure, and they look pretty cool, and I'll be interested, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, they do. I think that's like the next generation of it, but I'm still like a little skeptical that a computer-based program is going to take someone's swing and say, do that, that, and that, and they'll be fixed. And yep, on your way, you're a better golfer now. Well, this is someone asked me the other day, Adam, are you not worried that your job is going to become obsolete in the future by the AI apps? And I, I laugh. It might create more opportunities for you. <laughs> I'm like, there are going to be so many golfers who get on these things and are tinkering with everything. And they're like, oh my God, I'm getting my numbers better on this AI app and I'm hitting it worse. I just don't understand it. So they're going to come to me and I'm going to say, yeah, this is why you're hitting it worse because this impact factor is out. These AI apps don't look at that. So yeah, it's going to cause, I'm sure there'll be some people who benefit from it. I'm sure there are some things that those AI apps can help people with, you know, like overall posture or something. I bet there are a load of tall pros you could stick on those AI apps who would get low scores on it. And yet they're raking in millions each week. So yeah, someone like Daniel Berger comes to mind, like very unorthodox looking swing or even like look at you know Ricky Fowler who kept changing and changing his golf swing 
I saw him playing well the other week. It looked as laid off as ever. <laughs> and he was trying to get those hands. Yeah, or Dustin Johnson or Bryson. I mean, Bryson stands so far away from it. And it won't take me out of a job if anything. It'll line our pockets a little bit more. Not that I, I want that. I just want golfers to get better. God, I'm such a good guy, aren't I? You're the best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that was my example of a perfect example of someone who, you know, had a nicer checkpoint looking swing than me, but had zero control over impact fundamentals. Reverse shaft lean, face open and close, chunking it, slicing it, hooking it all over the place. And my dad has a very, he's pretty much quit the game at this point. He can't do it. He's just, he's exactly that. I just, I don't want him to not enjoy his time on the course. He'll come out with me once in a while, but it's just not for him. It doesn't suit up with his personality. And that sometimes is a the reality of golf. It doesn't match up with people's expectations and what they like to do. That pursuit might be better in something else where it's a more straightforward, you know, he loves building things and stuff like that. That's where mechanics translate to pure success. It's just not that way in golf. It really isn't. There's no straight line to that. Yeah. And there's even, you know, you're talking about your father's level. I could even go up to higher levels. When I was at IMG Academies, there were some golfers. I remember the South American golfers. They were always very unkempt with their swings. They were kind of homegrown, never really taught mechanics. And so a lot of them looked like Furic, very flary swings and lots of moving parts. And they could do anything with the ball. They were really, really good. And then you had some other players who had much more orthodox looking techniques, you know, very Adam Scott-esque. And yet they weren't as good as players. You know, they'd spent a lot of time working on their mechanics and they were almost de-skilled to a certain point. And even at the very elite level, you know, when we had V1, which is like a, it's an app to put side by side videos of players. So we used to use that in our coaching. And when I was at the Ledbetter Academy, one of the model swings that we all used to base our teaching off was Aaron Badley. Do you even know the name? Oh, yeah. He was, listen, <laughs> he, was a, he was a good he player. He was a great tour player. His swing used to be, at least the model that we used to use, used to be the model for the kind of Ledbetter Academies. And the irony was his swing looked exactly like the textbook, yet his strokes gained for long game was not very good. And in fact, I think... At the yeah, he was an incredible putter. Yeah, exactly. I think, obviously, he's still a good ball strike and stuff, but it was never up to par. Like, you could take someone with a much less orthodox swing like Furyk or Dustin Johnson or Matt Wolf or Hovland or anything like that, and those guys were much better ball strikers. And yet we were using this guy as the model. It didn't make sense in my mind. And so that, again, I was looking at, what is the difference with Badley then? If his swing is looking like the model, yet his strokes gained off the tee and tee to green is not as good, what is the difference? And it came down to impact. So yeah, I mean, at all levels, these things can apply. We've all seen that guy, you look at his swing and you think, oh my God, how does he hit a ball? And then he just punts it down the middle of the fairway every time. And then you see that other golfer, I get loads of them, right? When people come for lessons with me online and they send me their swings, I've seen some killer looking swings. I've seen some really good looking swings and they tell me their handicap's like 15. I'm like, dude, this is not a 15 handicap swing. I mean, I'm going to give you a couple of things to work on, but you need to spend 80% of your time in skill development mode and maybe looking at strategy. There's a golfer I play with several times and I said it to him. I'm like, this is going to sound bad, but I'm just trying to ask you a question. I think he's like a seven or eight handicap, has gorgeous looking golf swing. I look at it, I'm like, wow. Like, you know, sometimes I look at swings like that. I'm like, well, I wish I could look like that. And I keep asking him like, 
and I'm watching him play and it's, you know, sometimes he'll just lose it, start hooking it, kind of has issues around the greens where he's, you know, double chipping, stuff like that. I mean, his confidence just falls apart. But you put him on a video and you showed it to a bunch of people to be like, that is a very nice, pretty golf swing. His problem is the on-course scoring skill, which, you know, attributes back to a lot of these impact fundamentals. He doesn't really trust that swing, though, unfortunately, and some things come up. And when he's hooking the ball, he's not quite sure how to fix it, it seems. But yeah, I've seen plenty of examples of it myself where you have golfers who are like, how are you, you know, how's your best score in 85? It looks like you could shoot in the low 70s. I'm thinking now. Yeah, it happens. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating because they probably know their swing is pretty too. And they know people know look at their swing. You're like, that's a great golf swing. But then you go out there and you're struggling and you're like, well, what's going on here? Yeah. I'm thinking now to a, uh, a player when I worked in Austria and they kind of uh, hate to lump people into <laughs> mentality, but the Austrians are very, you know, these are the protocols. You do it this way. That's just their culture. Germans and Austrians tend to be that way. And this guy, Austrian guy, working on his swing, he got down to pro level and he felt he needed another gear, felt he needed another level. His swing was kind of, it had some orthodoxies to it and it was nothing too bad. And so he spent the next three years just working on perfecting the look of his swing, the mechanics of his swing. And by the end of it, boy, did it look good. In fact, it was part of my training at the Ledbetter Academy. When we first came in, they said, have a look at this swing and tell us what's wrong with it. And everybody looks at it and we're like, I can't see a thing. It's beautiful. And they're like, yeah, and this player's got worse <laughs> since. And they showed us the before and after. And they say, which is the better swing? And everybody goes, well, that one on the right. And they say, well, the one on the left used to shoot four under par every time. And the one on the right can't break par anymore. So it was real eye-opener for us to see that, oh, my God, this swing can look so beautiful and can get better. Yeah, that player can get worse for many reasons. He de-skilled his impact. He was unconfident with the swing. It wasn't ingrained. And you can just go down this rabbit hole with mechanics where you start thinking so much about certain things that your body loses the coordination between all of the variables. So yeah, I mean, so many different topics we can go through with this. But What's next on your checklist of stuff you wanted to cover here? I know you got a list there. Yeah, so I got another one. I put this reverse the argument. So you could take that discussion that the guy gave of controlling... I'm starting to feel really bad now that we're picking on this loyal listener because I, I don't want it to seem that way because they probably identify themselves at this point. But if you're listening and you know who you are, do not worry. We don't take offense to this. This is really feedback that you've gotten throughout your, you know, on your website for years, right? It's just the same thing over and over and over again. It's all learning. I talk passionately about this. I don't want anybody to mistake me for arguing. I'm just like really passionate about this. You know, I've heard the counter argument to my stuff so many times. I have good counter argument back. I just wanted that opportunity to give it. So yeah, I mean, you could reverse that discussion. So they're saying that technique is the best way to learn impact. Well, I could argue the reverse, that you could learn impact and that's one of the best ways to organize your technique better. So we used the example earlier of the ground contact guy, the guy who was on his back foot flipping it. All of a sudden I ask him to hit the ground farther forwards and now his weight is shifting. He's 
increased his lag, his releases later, and he's contacting the ground better, and he's not thinking of the mechanics. So we gave him a task, and the mechanics came for free. The nail drill is another example of this. I've had so many players who come to me, and they're like, I've sliced it for 15 years. I've never been able to swing in to out in my entire life. And I put my ball with a nail on the ground and I say, hammer that in this direction. And the very first swing they do, they swing in to out and we measure it on quad. And I say, so I didn't even tell you anything mechanically. And sometimes I'll video their swing and I'll say, oh, look, you know, all that stuff you were talking about, the club shaft being steep, the hands being too far in front of you, the sequence being out. Well, all those things just fixed themselves in one swing and I didn't have to tell you anything about it. So, you know, sometimes the task and the impact focus can improve the technique itself. See, it's reverse organizing, I say. I hope I don't butcher this anecdote, but I'm thinking of like that Harvey Panic. It's potentially from the Little Red Book. My brain's like... Under the tree, right? Yeah, where he just like, you know, I guess there's the player who's struggling hitting the ball too high and he's like, he just puts them in front of a tree and he says, here's a bunch of balls. He walks away and then he comes back and then the player has figured out Essentially, I'm assuming how to de-loft the club because they have this massive tree in front of them and they have to keep it below the branch. I actually still find that interesting when I'm presented with physical, you know, things on the golf course, like the few times a year where I'm going to try and hit a cut shot where I think I can do it around a tree. I usually can pull it off quite nicely when I have that physical barrier in front of me, but I would never try and do it just out into the abyss. That's the golf course of just plain air. So yeah, the cues like that, whether you physically showed someone the nail, I'm assuming you had a golf ball with a nail on it and you're like, make it go that way. Or like that example of Harvey Panic with the tree. Again, that's kind of like the self-organization thing that leads to more of those mechanical changes happening without thinking about them. Yeah. I wrote an entire article on that very thing that I think I called it. Harvey Pennick was way ahead of his time because he used in that anecdote essentially a constraint. So this constraint was an environmental one. So he asked that player to go over and hit balls underneath the tree limb and he would come and, so and talk to him later. And obviously he went and talked to him later and the guy had fixed his problems. Well, Harvey Pennick obviously knew, well, if I try and get that player to hit the ball lower they're going to tap into instincts that will automatically move the low point forward. So they're going to start striking it better and presenting more forward shaft lean. So he gave them a task and it self-organized the movement pattern. So yeah, it's an example of a constraint-led approach to learning, a very outcome-led skill. And so yeah, I use mixtures of those. The towel drill is an example of that as well. So I did it where you place a ball on the ground and you put a towel behind it, maybe four or five inches behind it, and you're trying to strike the towel or guitar pick and that effectively eliminates fat and thin shots. So yeah, that's another constraint. If you're too much on your back foot when you do that towel drill, you'll smack the towel and you'll have to start again. So give someone five, 10 minutes on that drill and they'll automatically figure it out. What do you think about like someone had posted a video on Twitter the other day of Payne Stewart. This was a while back, obviously. His drill that he used when he was struggling with a slice, he would shove an alignment rod into the ground that essentially forced him to come underneath and inside more versus, you know, had he gone in the opposite direction, he'd be smacking that alignment rod. Do you like stuff like that? 
I don't tend to do them. One of the reasons I don't is because they're dangerous. When people start to hit alignment sticks and things, they can break clubs or, you know, alignment sticks. I've seen them come out of the ground and yeah. poke people in the eye. There was another video of, did you see the guy, the video broke his, <laughs> he broke his, I think Mark Crossfield posted it. You can check his Twitter profile for it. But there was a guy trying to stop coming from in to out. And he hit his, he was doing it in his living room and he broke his glass table. Oh, it was pretty no. funny. That was a constraint. <laughs> he broke something. So yeah, he could have killed himself with a shard of glass. So your point's well taken. Yeah. I mean, they can be useful as feedback aids, but lots of people, they can be cheated as well, those ones. So I'm very careful about which kind of constraint I use, but I would prefer, I would use more the nail drill if I'm trying to change someone's path. I've never seen someone not be able to do that. Not in a lesson with me anyway, where I can guide them and, and take them through step by step. But yeah, I like constraints like that. So feedback stuff like the divot board, constraints like the towel drill, they all work really. I prefer feedback devices really because that leaves, it puts the people more in the control of what they're trying to do rather than what they're trying to avoid. So I always try to give people the positive version of that if possible. So similarly, if you know, if someone's striking off the toe, or let's just say they're shanking it, right? And you know the drill where you place two balls together and you're supposed to only hit the inside ball? Yep. That is basically their brain telling them, don't do this. And that's okay, that works. But usually when you take that constraint away, they go back to the old pattern for many people. So what I found is that more positive intention-based versions of that. So, you know, the 3D aim point that I do where I spray spots on the ground. So I spray spots closer to them, or maybe I put a T and I put it closer to them and I say, hit the ball and the T. So that's a more positive thing because they're trying to do something. They're trying to do something instead of trying to avoid something. And that tends to hold up better when they go on the course for some reason. I have no idea why, but it seems to be that way. So yeah, there's just loads of ways of doing this stuff. But you know, if another point on my list here is if you are highly skilled, then it actually helps you when it comes to making mechanical changes. So the easiest pupils I have that I get to work with are the ones who have skills because I can tell them to do something in their backswing and they'll be able to do it and still recalibrate their strike. Whereas if you take a high handicapper who has very poor face strike skills and you tell them to change something in their swing, usually they don't get either. <laughs> They'll not get the swing thing that they want because they're not well versed at making changes in their swing. And usually something will go wrong at impact that needs recalibrating and now they don't have the skills to be able to do it. Whereas when you have a pupil, I'm the perfect example of this. If you ask me to change my swing, I can do it. And yes, my impact might go awry for a few moments, but... I can recalibrate that impact very quickly because of my skills. And if anybody wants to see this in action, go to my blog. It's called These Weird Swing Methods or something like that. I'll find out the article name anyway. But I did 11 different swings or something like that that were really strange. You know, like I looped it over my head or I took a weird grip just to prove that impact is the thing that creates the outcome. And I had to, with each of those new swings, I had to learn what's happening at impact, how do I recalibrate it? And I could do that because of my skills. So these skills allow me to make changes to my swing more readily. So if you are a mechanical player, then skill development is only going to support that, not hinder it. Yeah, I think exploring that process is one of the things that I think illustrates it clearly because, again, you're 
totally changing the mechanics of the swing, but creating the same result, which is, you know, striking it well on the face and then controlling the face to path and then hitting a functional golf shot. That's the unseen thing. You're seeing all these wacky swings, but if you could do 10 different ones and get the same result what's the common theme <laughs> so impact yeah yeah of course it's called nine crazy swing experiments that will blow your mind so if you type that into google you'll see the video of me doing these swing experiments yeah it would be no different than giving like you know if you gave me a quote-unquote senior driver meaning like you know the shaft was light you know, super soft flex, like flexes a ton. That would feel a lot different than my extra stiff, like tip driver that's heavier. And it would perform differently as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would figure it out. I mean, I did an experiment with a persimmon driver a few years ago. I was just kind of messing around with like an old blade from the 60s and a persimmon driver from the 60s compared to modern equipment. And I sprayed just for fun. I sprayed the persimmon's face and I had no issue accessing the center of the face. I mean, the ball traveled differently through the air because of the equipment was so different. It spun a lot more, but I was still able to access the center of the face. It didn't feel that different. It was a lot heavier because it had a steel shaft. But, you know, I think, again, a testament to the work the thousands of hours I've put in to develop my skill. But yeah, that's what golf is. Things change on you on the course and you have to adapt with your skill. I used to get it all the time as a teacher. I'd have to pick up someone's club out of the bag and demonstrate for them. Now, I use shorter clubs that are three degrees flat. So you can imagine not many people have that kind of combination. So I'd pick up a club and it'd be upright, it'd have a different flex. And I'd have to figure out how to hit that shot straight within a couple of swings or I look like an idiot as an instructor. But I could, luckily, through the differential practice that I've done. And while our equipment, I know lots of people listening to this are going, well, yeah, my equipment doesn't change mid-round. Well, yeah, it doesn't but you do <laughs> you change from day to day and you can change mid-round you can step up on the range one day and have a slice and next day have a hook or you could have a heel bias pattern and a toe bias pattern the next so you as a person are changeable from day to day so you have to adapt to yourself effectively and these skill drills allow you to do that every round of golf i play i think about these things like for example even turf conditions change i'm playing a lot of different golf courses under different conditions. I played further out east on Long Island where the soil was a bit sandier. And this was in a tournament where they mowed the areas around the green like super tight. You know, the grain is going against you. And I showed up. I think I chunked. I had one hole early in the tournament where I chunked one and I was like, oh boy. And I really had to adjust my ball position and shaft lean towards the end of the round, I was like, I cannot, it scared me a bit, to be honest with you. And I'm like, I think the only way I can manage functional contact here is by moving this further back in my stance and doing the shaft lean thing and just getting the ball first and digging more. Because if I go with the neutral, trying to maybe skim it with the bounce, I'm either going to, I just didn't feel confident that the soil really threw me for a loop and I had to make a change and I wasn't hitting great wedge shots, but I wasn't chunking them either. So these things show up all the time. Well, look at me as an example now because I've hurt my hip. By the way, everybody, it's not golf-related. My wife went to hit me. <laughs> it sounded like a domestic abuse here. We were play-joking around. She went to hit me. I tried to get out of the way and twisted my hip. But yeah, that's completely changed my swing. You know, my body is stalling through impact because I can't rotate through impact. And my hands are flipping over and effectively I'm hitting everything left. But I'm able to at least, you know, quickly figure out a solution to that. So when we played, you know, I started out hitting it left, but I figured out how to change it. 
Yeah, this was happening on our epic match at TPC Sawgrass, which was our second simulator round where your hip was hurting more. And I was like, geez, this guy's pulling everything. And then, yeah, you fixed it. Yeah, so it's like that ability. I know you're not always going to get injured or anything, but these skills, they allow you. So I know in the future when my body ages and, you know, new injuries pop up, my flexibility declines, I'll still be able to play decent golf because I'll be able to take my new body and my old swing and I'll be able to make it function to the best of its ability. And that's a huge part of this is that skill development allows you to take the technique you have, even if it's horrible. Take the technique you have and get the most out of it. Whether your technique is beautiful like Adam Scott's or whether it's horrible like some of my crazy swing experiments, you will be able to get the most out of it. So there is no time where you shouldn't be working on skill development. I use the analogy of a glass. I say that, you know, the size of the glass is your technique, you know, quality of your technique. So yeah, you're going to be limited to a certain extent by your technique. If your technique is absolutely horrible and you can't hit a straight shot, that's going to be a limiter. But whether you reach your technique potential or whether you fill that glass is going to be more product of your skill development. So we need to work on both really. And I see way too many golfers with big glasses that are half empty because they're not filling it with that skill development. I think we're getting towards the end here now. We've spent over two hours making our case, but... We can wrap up. No, I, I honestly, like, I, I <laughs> as long as people listen to this show, we're going to keep coming back to it. And if someone says, like, oh, well, this is getting boring, it's no different than... I hate to make this analogy because it's kind of silly, but there's some elements that are the same. When you ever hear... I was a Michael Jordan fanatic as a child. And when you hear about what made great team athletes like him so great was that when he showed up to the Bulls, there was a very undisciplined, poorly coached team. And they wouldn't even practice the basic stuff because they're, oh, we're professional basketball players. We don't have to do the basics. And he went in there and he obsessed over getting the small details and the fundamentals correct. Again, this is not an apples to apples comparison. I think a lot of golfers don't know about this stuff, or even if they did hear about it, they're like, oh, that's just too basic. That can't be the answer. It's got to be somewhere in the mechanics of my swing. Oh, John, I've had so many golfers when I go through this skill stuff. And these are golfers who've had not thousands of lessons, but hundreds of lessons, maybe read everything out there, watched millions of YouTube videos. And then, you know, we change something at impact and they go, why didn't no one tell me about this? I'm like, what do you mean? And I said, well, everything I've ever learned was about my takeaway or my backswing or this or that. And no one ever got me to focus on impact like you did in this lesson. I'm like, I've been wasting my time for years. And I said, well, it's maybe not time wasted, but <laughs> you, know, you could have fast forwarded certain things, definitely. Yeah, I still think people can arrive at the skill destination even with that. But like you said, it will be, they have a lower chance of success. They might not get there or it might take a lot longer. Slower. Yeah, exactly. I'm probably one of those people too. I spent many years focusing on the wrong things, but you know, somewhere in there I was being athletic and figuring it out and paying attention and maybe being a little intuitive and then eventually got there. But I think our role as coaches on this show, if you're coming to us as your kind of virtual golf coaches, a lot of people are showing up week after week and we deeply appreciate that. We're going to continue to beat this drum because it's that important. And I think that's what a lot of coaching is, is reminding people of the same message because over time, as this game throws <laughs> a lot of variables at you in days where things are not going well, 
no matter what, you can do all the skill intervention you want. Sometimes it just doesn't work. You'll be tempted to go back to maybe those YouTube videos and go back to like, well, maybe my shaft position in this thing. I just think you've got a better chance on this side of the fence. Not to say that I'm, you know, to get back to your point, it's not to say you can't do that at all. It's just like if you're not working on the skill and being cognizant of what's going on in your ball flight and working backward to those impact fundamentals, you've got a better chance of making those adjustments over the long haul. Yeah, it's so tempting when you're having a bad day, right? Whatever you're working on, whether it's you're trying to fix it through a skill approach or even you have a swing thought and it stops working, it's so tempting to jump ship and trying to find something new because I think deep down everybody believes there's some kind of secret out there. There's this one thing that's going to light up their game and it will stay the same forever. The reality is it isn't. When you find something that usually, you know, makes you hit it better instantly, usually it goes after a while. So we just need to be aware of the big three. We need to adapt to what's happening. That's my big thing. And I think the bottom line with all of this is there is no swing technique that's going to guarantee good impact positions. You know, there are things that could correlate to it, but there's no impact. There's no swing technique that's going to guarantee good impact positions. So you have to dedicate some time to learning to control impact directly through skill development approaches. I think let's just end it there. I think we've said all we have to say. We'll probably address this again in the future in a different way. But, you know, I thought it was important to spend this time on this concept again. I think we probably approached it in a little bit different way. But, you know, hopefully everyone got something out of this. So is that it? Are we done? Yeah. And start on your impact development straight away. Don't wait for your technique to be in this magical place that never ever exists in the beginning and you'll never even get to if it did exist. Don't wait for that to happen before you start skill development approaches. Start them now because they'll only support your technical development as well. And my last piece on this is a big plug for my next level golf program so that or any of my programs really but next level golf is where if you really want to dive in i go through all the outcomes all the impact variables that create those outcomes so you're very educated on them and then i go through skill development for each of those impact variables as well as technical changes i don't disregard the technical i do show you that stuff And I show you then how to even structure your practice so you're doing the right amounts at the right time. And then I even show you how matchups work so you start developing an understanding of why different pros look different and why different things can be acceptable and why your swing doesn't have to look like a certain model. So that's my major plug. John, where can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And of course, thanks to our show sponsor, the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. If you're in the market for a golf simulator, a launch monitor, like some of the stuff Adam and I have been talking about, looking for hitting mats, practice nets, impact screens, projectors, whatever you need to build your indoor golf setup. They've got experts who can help you with the technology Sometimes it's intimidating and give them a call. So check out the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. Thanks again for their support. I didn't give my website. It's adamyounggolf.com. I hope people know it by now, but yeah. (laughs) I think they know where to find you at this point. And in a closing thought, we're open to all types of feedback. So keep it coming. People message me every day. People message Adam every day. We greatly appreciate the support. And we will be back next time with a new episode.